0: Hello, welcome to Jewel Says. I have a special guest today. His name is J.P. Castlin, and I met him online, I'm saying quote-unquote met him, years ago when I read his very articulate essay about comedy and perspective at a time when Catherine was receiving an onslaught of violent threats from people who had just clearly misunderstood a joke. She seems to let these things roll off her, but it is a little more difficult for me. You know, I could probably take it if it were directed at me better than one of my children. But I have followed JP ever since. And this year in March, JP honored me by asking me to take over his Twitter feed on International Women's Day. JP works as an independent strategic management consultant. He's a highly acclaimed writer, speaker, he's a lawyer, a marketing and brand strategist. But more important than his long list of professional credentials, he is a fascinating, thoughtful, caring human being who generously offered to record an informal little chat with me, Jules, for my fluffy little podcast. I hope you enjoy hearing J.P.'s perspectives as much as I enjoyed our chat. I could have continued for hours, but J.P. is a busy man in demand, and I had to get to work myself. Without further ado, J.P. Castlin. Welcome to Jules Says J.P. I'm really honored that you're willing to come on this podcast. I follow some of your stuff, and it's a little too cerebral for old Jules, but I appreciate that you're willing to come on here and talk about sort of light life stuff. So thank well,
1: you. It's my, it's my absolute pleasure. And I think the the life stuff is no less cerebral or important than anything else. So, <laughs> you know, happy to do it.
0: Well, it is important. I mean, after all, that's really the thing that matters. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Anything you'd like to share?
1: Anything I'd like to share? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the sh- long and the short of it is a former lawyer working in and acquisitions, who then moved into strategy, business strategy, marketing strategy, and um, a whole lot of writing and speaking and things like that. So I'm both sort of a marketer and a lawyer, which usually puts me in part of the devil in most people's eyes, and then I've added sort of management consulting on top of that. So, you know, most thing, most people, I think, would consider me to be pure evil at this stage, but, you know, that's fine. Um, but, yeah, that's me in a nutshell, I suppose.
0: Well, all the lawyers, What what's the Shakespearean saying? The lawyers, I forget, I actually have a magnet on my, on my magnet board. The lawyers let them burn in hell or something. I have to look it yeah. up because now that's irritating me because I should know it.
1: <laughs> hmm. but- yeah, I mean, the thing about lawyers is, is the more lawyers there are, the more problems there will be, the more lawyers there will be required and so on and so forth. So lawyers are kind of like viruses in that sense. Uh, You know, but certain certain kinds of lawyers, I always think that it's kind of like there's there's a saying in advertising that everybody hates advertising until they lose their cat, Right. At which point you put up the poster and it's similar with lawyers is that like people hate lawyers until they need one, at which point you need a really good one or you want a really good one anyway. Um and that's kind of what it is with the legal field from my experience. Of course there are a lot of dickheads in 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 law, but there are dickheads in all kinds of fields. So, you know.
0: But I think you you usually don't need a lawyer until you have an argument to manage. And I think that's really the mm. crux of it. People have difficulty with the argument and then there's a lawyer on the other side sometimes doing an excellent job of advocating for your adversary. So I think that's partly why people are uncomfortable with the legal profession. The only time I've ever dealt with a lawyer was through my divorce. And it was like a knife twisting in my gut every time I had to have a letter or a conversation or anything. And so context is everything. Maybe Mm. mergers and acquisitions aren't quite so adversarial as family law, or at least emotionally Um, adversarial.
1: Well. Yeah, I mean, from my experience, and, and I've done some family law, whenever there's money involved, people tend to show their ugliest sides. Um, I've literally had a divorce case, and this was while I was still sort of studying, really, but we were helping out, basically. And the the man and the, and the previous wife, so to speak, they were arguing over things like just small containers of spices and just like stuff that would cost you a dollar at most. And, and again, as soon as there's money involved, I mean, in terms of and acquisition, there's usually just a lot of money involved. You do deals that are you know, in the billions of dollars. So people tend to get quite stressed. But um, the other thing as well, interestingly enough, when you do those kinds of numbers is that they tend to become quite abstract. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, because if you're dealing with those kinds of big numbers, then you know if, if you actually understand how much money it is, then I think... Most people would collapse under the pressure. But again, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, a, a family law is such a, whenever there's kids involved and, you know, feelings and that kind of thing, it's it's everything becomes very infected very quickly, um, unfortunately. But, you know, it is what it is. The best use of a lawyer, I always say, is, is have the lawyer before you have to have the divorce or you have to you know, have the disagreement of whatever it is. You drop all the contracts when you're friends, you know, if possible. That's basically the best use of a the lawyer. Then sometimes you won't even have to use a lawyer for the second bit.
0: Well, that makes sense. But I feel like if you're friends, you're probably not going to get a divorce. But I digress. We didn't ask you on mm-hmm. here to talk about divor- divorce. And your specialty in the legal area was mergers and acquisitions, it sounds like.
1: Yes. So, yeah, corporate finance, basically. And and then from that as well into what is called corporate governance, um, mm-hmm. which is essentially running boards for companies. Uh, but then that kind of led me into strategy, and and it was in strategy that I find my. To use a a cliche, but it, it's sort of my calling, um, and so that's what I've done ever since.
0: I was um, going to ask yeah. you how you transitioned and what motivated you to transition.
1: Um, it was it was a really dull story. Really, it was where I was working, uh, and this is often the case for these kinds of companies. The it's same. It's same for finance and, and corporate finance. In other words, the legal field, from my experience, which is that companies will hire what they call insecure overachievers, by which they mean people who have top grades, but because they have top grades, they don't have a lot of friends. Um, and then they sort of, you know, they uh, employ them and they burn them out. Uh, subsequently, in about I don't know, two years, I think average tenure at our company was something like six months, six months to a year, I think, and then people were just burnt out. And the, the sort of the select few that actually make it through this, this you know, hell, then eventually over time, you'll earn a bit more and then you earn a bit more. And then come year five, you basically you get another zero on your salary. Um, and I, I was at year four and a half, I think it was. And it was clear that I was sort of coming up to that level where they would have to add a zero. But this was during the financial crisis, 2008. So they wanted to keep me, but they didn't want to pay me uh necessarily um and as old as time (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly right uh and so what happened was i basically went okay so i'm just gonna look elsewhere but the problem is that you don't necessarily quit at those kinds of companies you get fired right and so the the company ceo he just went okay we'll allow you to leave but we will not provide any references at all now that's the equivalent of not just performing poorly but it's like you, you were never there And so subsequently, when I looked at other jobs, I I would get to the point where they would call the firm and then that was it. So I was kind of forced to actually sort of come up with something myself. And that's what eventually led me to switching to a sort of a tangential field, but but not necessarily the same thing. And that, again, that led me to strategy. And the thing about that as well is that in corporate language, you know, you see this term all the time, pivoting, right? Mm -hmm. You pivot. Yeah. What is often lost in, in uh, the context is that whenever you pivot, you pivot into a context where all your new competitors already know what they're doing. Yeah. And when I, quote unquote, pivoted into strategy, I basically had to outperform everyone. And, and this because at every single gig I got, if, if there's someone there that I knew, they just went, "Well, what are you doing here? You're a lawyer, right?" Yeah. And then you just go, "Okay." So that in turn forced me to start all the other stuff. The the writing and the talking and the blah blah blah, blah in order to just prove myself and then over time it turned out I was quite good at that as well but I mean writing I've done since I wrote my first quote-unquote professional article when I was 14 so I've done that for a fair few years well, um, but I it's, think you know, it's yeah,
0: I think you're a very good writer you first came to my attention when you wrote a piece after my daughter Catherine was getting death threats mm. over a misunderstood joke yeah And I, I don't know if you still have it or if you can find it, but I haven't been able to find it. And I,
1: no, I mean, uh, it might be on one of my old computers. I'll give, I'll give it a look, but, but, uh, I was trying to find this morning. I couldn't find it, but, but uh, that actually came during that sort of, um, transition phase, if you want to call it that, because I was the reason why I was doing a lot of, I was writing stand up for british comedians i was doing stand up myself in order to i just do it for practice basically for my other speaking stuff but so i was sitting at law firm board and i was writing all this stuff and then uh, i saw the the original joke with catherine and i saw the reaction and um i just wrote a reply saying basically explaining how jokes work and how this joke was constructed actually her point was the exact opposite of what some people took from it yeah. And it was funny to see the reaction because I think I got five death threats myself as well. I didn't really care too much. But um Yeah, it was just odd.
0: Wow. Well, I all I remember is how beautifully articulated it was. And that's what made me go, Oh, who is this person? So then I started following you and and then I saw changes over time. And mm-hmm. you've had some life changes since then as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you go through life and then uh, obviously now I'm married and have a daughter and it's it's one of those things as well. I mean, it's such a, again, a cliche, but um, about a month ago or so, it was minus five ish centigrade outside, no uh, clouds, sun is out, just perfect day, winter day, basically. And it was Saturday morning and I was working. And because I needed to finish a presentation for a thing. And my wife just went, Oh, well, I'll take our daughter outside and go play so you can work in peace. And I worked for about five minutes. And then I thought, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go out and play with them in the snow instead. And it was literally one of the best mornings of my life. Right. And trying to identify what really matters in life is actually one of those things that you do far too late. Oh, um, I tell think. Me about it. Yeah, and which is why I'm having this thing. I'm, I've, I've just come up with this idea. It's probably stupid, but for my family, I'm having every for sort of the larger family. I'm having every family member over the age of sixty write down their sort of the life lessons on a page in a book. And then as soon as someone turns sixty, they can add to their page. And basically, you, you have that as sort of a a thing for all the family to read. Because again, it's it's when you read it, it's like of course that's what matters in life, right? But it's Saying it and experiencing it are two different things. And again, you a lot of these things you experience way too late in your life, unfortunately.
0: That's true. That's kind of what my podcast is. Life lessons mm. and regrets, really.
1: Yeah. When you yeah. think
0: about it in a nutshell. Because yeah. I, I do have a lot of regrets. And I mean, I know people say, well, you can't have regrets. Whatever you did brought you here. But I have quite a few. And yeah. I, my issue is, well, my issue. It isn't an issue. My whole point of sharing it is I would really love for people to figure these things out sooner Mm -hmm. so that they don't get to 60 and have a super long list. I mean, even with boundaries at work, I did learn to set boundaries at work because there were specific reasons where I thought that I was being persistently taken advantage of. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I say is, well, I've never heard of anyone on their deathbed saying, I wish I spent more time at the office
1: yeah no i mean that that's very true um i think as well as as um not taking a lot of crap from people or unnecessarily crap i have a friend and i haven't really spoken about this too much publicly because it, i think it's her story more so than mine in fact my wife didn't know about it my parents didn't know about this until this person mentioned it in her talk at her wedding but i have a, a friend who um she used to work at, uh, she, she still works in construction and, and uh, real estate, but she used to work at this company and they had one of those team building affairs, right? And it was basically her boss, her, a couple of other middle management types and a chef, right? So there was this cooking class and it was designed to be team, team building, whatever else. And the, her boss started groping her. And, uh, of course, because they were all male, the other people, no one said, you know, anything. Um, and she left the room and he followed her and pushed her up, pushed her up against the wall. And she came back into the room crying. And, and at which point the chef, not anyone else at her company, but the chef spoke up and was just like, what the hell's happening here anyway? And so she called me on the way back home and crying. And I was just like, okay, well, I'll send the, your CEO an email. An email basically saying, "Yeah, if you don't sort this shit out, I'm gonna sue the hell out of you." And what what apparently happened was that the very next day, the CEO called the guy in so that the entire company could hear it. Let's put it that way. Just just shouted obscenities at him, had him apologize in front of the entire organization, and then fired him.
0: and oh, Wow!
1: Yeah. And that's one of those things, you know, talk about not taking crap. I mean, she doesn't take crap now, but also it's like being able, actually, not being able to, but actually sort of standing up for yourself. Because a lot of people just go, well, you know, it's bad and you have to do this because otherwise I won't get a promotion or whatever else. But, you know, uh, life's kind of too short.
0: Well, and you advocated for her. I think it's very important for women in these positions to have men advocating because this isn't a woman's problem. This is a human problem.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's also, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine when I wrote an article about sort of, I suppose, women in the working place. That's such a cliche as well. But but uh, how one treats women and equality and so on. It had to do with the fact that, so as a very quick off piece, just to sort of demonstrate where I'm coming from, my grandmother on my mom's side was one of the first strong feminists in sweden and so and, and my mom is one of those people who one of those women who could silence an entire football stadium by, by just one look right and so kamala harris was the first female and also black vice president in the us and that's what everyone was talking about my mom just like yes but aren't we past that point why does it matter if she's a woman or that she's black she's a vice president you know it we shouldn't be concerned about those things because it should be just natural anyway and anyway so i wrote a piece about that and i was talking to this friend of mine and she made a really a really important point that i wish that that because i still struggle with it myself i still i think a lot of men do but it's there's a difference between speaking up for someone and speaking over them right and so with my friend for example i basically told him okay so this is what i'm going to do and i then she was fine with it but Again, when you're sort of standing up for, for your sort of fellow women, you have to do it on their terms, not yours, if that makes sense, I think. I think uh, it does. Because, again, sense. yeah, because otherwise there's a lot of white knighting and sort of, yes, well, of course, the weak sex, I have to stand up for her. Otherwise, you know, and that's kind of not the point. In fact, in fact I'd say it's the opposite of the point.
0: But I do think part of the point is we still have, and maybe things are better in Sweden. We, we all think that things in Sweden are better than they are in North America. Mm. But I do think that very often when you have a company of men with men in charge, they will only respect when the man speaks up. That's Mm. part of the problem. So for a woman to speak up, it might be like, I don't know. Let's play that friend scenario out. If she had just gone to the CEO, who knows, like how many women have gone to a, a leader or HR or a CEO telling them about something like that and it just gets brushed under the rug or ignored. So having a lawyer write a very pointed letter or an email, I think makes a difference. And I think very often men just respect hearing from men more than they do from women. So I feel like that's, even though you're right, you have to advocate on the woman's terms. We still need men to advocate. We can't just do it ourselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think so too. Um, the one caveat I do have is um, after I'd written that piece by Kamala Harris, and it wasn't about her, it was again about inclusivity and diversity. And is there's a beyond all the sort of the, the quote unquote gender arguments, there's a, a, a real commercial reason why you want to increase diversity in a company, just based on pure mathematics and, and, and uh, commercial aspects. But anyway, but I wrote the thing and I said to uh, my friend, uh, who works a lot in, in these sort of circuits. And I said, all right, so I'm happy to essentially do a talk for free or you know anything like that if you have a, a, a conference and you want me to speak in front of other senior men, basically, because they might listen to me. And she said, okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah that, that sounds great. Uh, here's this person you want to speak to. Okay, so I, I, this person I apparently need to speak to, was well, some sort of inclusivity, whatever. I sent her an email saying, okay, so... You know, this is what I've done, and sort of this is my history, and and this is what I'd like to speak about. You know, if you at some point have an open spot at a conference, and I'm usually quite expensive as a speaker, but I'll do it for free, right? I didn't mention my, the expensive bit to her, obviously, but just for reference. Yeah. And her reply was, by offering to do this for free, you have robbed a minority of the opportunity to offer to do it for free. In other words, fuck off. And uh, at, at which point I just went, oh. Okay. And then I reached out to another guy who was um, also, he was running conferences in Europe and this is a guy. And I said, okay, so same story and I'll do this for free. And he replied with no, this is my field. Stop stepping on my toes.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: And you know, if you're, if that's the level we're at, at the moment, I just go, okay. So then I just, you know, I'll, I'll continue to support every woman that I know in my life and so on, you know, everything that they need. But if it's that kind of reaction, whenever you're offering to help, then that at, at some point, you just go, okay, so screw it. I'll just focus on the stuff. Exactly. Stuff. It's just weird.
0: I mean, f- fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. But supporting individuals, I think, matters anyway. Yeah. That's really upset because I think that's one of the reasons Oh, people complain about the left and they complain about, quote, unquote, wokeism. Now, yeah. I... I don't know of anyone who is self-proclaimed as woke. Yeah. And I think the term has kind of been hijacked. But then when you have someone yeah. who's in charge of inclusivity and they're actually just denying an opportunity for someone to, I don't know. I don't know.
1: Yeah. There's interesting. Uh, have you ever happened to have seen the, the show on HBO called the last of us? No. Uh, you see it's a masterpiece. It's one of the best dramas to come out in ages and age and age. It's based on a video game um, that is also rather good. But anyway, so I won't spoil anything uh, for any of your uh, listeners who haven't seen it, but I recommend it very highly. And so there was, in the sort of this third episode, right, all of the episode follows a man and essentially a teenage girl as they're sort of traversing through a post-apocalyptic zombie landscape, basically. And the third episode they feature for maybe five minutes total in the entire episode. And the rest of the episode is sort of a standalone story about these two middle-aged, too old, because it goes over time, gay men. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the best love stories you'll ever see, right? And what's been really interesting has been the reaction, is which is that when the sort of... If you look at people tweeting live and, and sort of also reviewing it, you see that when the, the show starts... And you, or you introduce these two gay people, gay men, and they start kissing, and then they have sex, and then it's all oh well, you know, this is HBO trying to force wokeism in our throat, blah 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 blah. And then what happened in, in the episode was Asset moved on. It was such a beautiful love story. These people came around, and it's when well actually this was an amazing love story, and that's why it's sort of if you look at there's I mean obviously you still have some homophobic people, but which is why if you look at the score, the IMDb score. For that episode, I think it's something like nine point eight, and it's because there are from all the reviewers and all the people there's just tens, and then it was review bombed with a bunch of zeros from Alphafox, so it's only tens and zeros, which is quite funny. But it, it's kind of the same thing, it, you know. Again, it's, if if we hijack, if we take woke and reduce it into these cliches and platitudes, you know, of course it's going to be ho- horseshit because you can't reduce a human being into any one thing or two things anyway but it is it has been hijacked it has been uh it's sort of seen as a i suppose a you know all that is wrong with the world by the conservatives who so want to go back to the sort of family values of the 1930s you know i think it would time, have been
0: horrible to be a woman in the 1930s
1: oh no yeah no absolutely uh, i mean but at the same time you know there is sometimes there is of course as well the, the, the part of that movement which is that you get quote unquote, new feminists who think that feminism was something that started when you began burning your bras in the 70s, you know, yeah. and no really understand, no real understanding of your history. But as long as they're coming from a from a right place, you know, who gives a shit? Exactly. Uh, I, I don't. Yeah. You know, whatever makes people happy anyway. But You know.
0: Yeah. I have said to you, I would say you're a feminist. Do you hate that term?
1: No, I don't hate it. I mean, I, I think it's a much more loaded term. In the us or in north america i i don't I, I don't label myself a feminist uh i've never i don't think my mom does either but it's just you know it's at the end of the day it's just about treating people well and and being kind to people and understanding that you know just be, there, there's no such, such thing as a weaker sex or you know it's just treat people treat women the way that you would treat men and you'll be fine it's not that difficult it's just don't be an asshole um, and the problem that I see with my American friends, and this is American more so than Canadian, because I think Canada is a lot close to Scandinavia, um, in terms of how the people are and the values and so on, at least it has been whenever I've been to Canada is that it's still very much a sort of, um, you know, the man is bringing in the home, the money, uh, the woman is staying at home with the kids and, when it seems to me like whenever a a, a a woman in the U.S. meets someone, her friends will ask her, "Well, what does he do, do for a living?" Mm-hmm. Which is the wrong question. The question you should ask is, "Does he make you happy?" Mm-hmm. That's it, right? And some of that have may have to do with with uh, a lack of class system historically and blah 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 blah. Hence, you sort of tie class to money, but that's a different argument. But you know, same thing there. When you are taking that sort of passive role of actually, I'm going to rely on you, then implicitly, I think perhaps you are sort of portraying that weaker sex in a sense. Not to say that there's anything wrong with being a housewife, absolutely not. But you kind of get my point. You know, if if that's what you're looking for in life is to find someone to be able to support you, um, then I think you're going to have a problem, you know, not least if you have a divorce.
0: Oh, I think it's hugely risky. I would be terrified to be financially dependent on someone. And I never have been. But I also think, what a gift to the family, even if you take a few years and sacrifice your career trajectory to look after hearth and home and children. What a gift. Uh, When I was raising my children and working, I used to sometimes think, man, I wish I had a wife. There's just too much for one person to do. So I think it's a gift, but it's certainly not a risk I would be willing to take. No way.
1: Yeah. No, no I, I agree. And and um, I saw, saw I think it was the latest stand special with Chris Rock, where he said uh, about romance and, and relationships in general, and said, it's not really that hard. It's just that, that it takes two people to lift a couch. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the point, right? You know, uh, however you do that, as long as you're contributing, then that's fine. Exactly. Um, at the same time, you know, the problem, of course, is that, And Americans work a lot anyway. But if you have a man who's now the sole provider for the family, you know, it tends to follow that he will prioritize work over family because he has to bring in the the money and wherever else. And that's not necessarily good for your family. In fact, I can't mention any names, but I know of one case in Sweden where... The 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 father was and, and the husband was so successful. He's very, very successful and built an extremely successful company that he was basically never there for his daughter. So much so that she eventually ended up in a, psych, a psychiatric ward because he was always sort of somewhere else. And then you go, OK, so you're providing for your family, but not really because the fact that you're gone so much, it means that, you know, they just suffer and that's the thing as well like like money although money is nice money's not everything there are a lot more important things in life and again i come back to to just you know the fact that i was able to go out and play in the snow with my daughter and my wife it was just yeah. you know
0: i mean as long as you have enough
1: yeah exactly and i mean again with sort of riffing, this is coming from a from an ex-lawyer working corporate finance and now management consultant like i i like money but don't get me wrong and you know, i like nice cars and nice watches and those kinds of things, the luxuries in life. But there's nothing that is as luxurious as being able to spend time with your family. That's just the fact, you know? Yeah,
0: that's true. That's true. I like, I like money too. The comfort of not having to worry about it. Yeah. I also like knowing that I don't have to rely on someone else. But the other problem with relying on someone for the money is very often the relationship dynamic evolves into because I earn the money I'm yeah. the one in charge, and it's my money, and that's the other risk. So that's the other reason I would never want to do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I kind of alludes to when I said, you know, the, sort of the weaker sex thing. That's basically it. You know, you get a power asymmetry in the relationship because the man or the woman, I mean, it doesn't have to be the man who's providing the money. It could be where else. But the the part who provides all the money, they do have that opportunity to just go, yeah, but... I'm paying for everything here, so you know if you don't like it, dot dot dot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it, it is what it is, but but being able to not only stand up for yourself, I suppose, in terms of, of vocalizing displeasure, but also being able to stand up for yourself in terms of the, just financially, I think yeah. is rather important. Again, so you not depend on anyone else.
0: Yeah, I think that's important too, mm-hmm. and having fulfillment because yeah your career. I i don't love my job, but I can yeah. say I took a one-year hiatus mid-pandemic that turned into two. Mm-hmm. And what surprised me about that was I didn't realize how much my job was tied to my self-worth. Yeah. I felt like such a loser because I wasn't earning money, because I wasn't going to work. And like it or not, I've invested so many years in this career This is what I'm good at. So for me to try and pivot, if you will, to something else. I mean, I did some audio books. I learned how to edit sound. I started the podcast. I did things like that. But all of a sudden, I'm doing something that I'm not good at, working very hard at things I'm not very good at and making no money. And it made me feel like a loser. So when I got an offer to go back to a contract, I took it. So I do have a contract Mm -hmm. again now. And they extended me, and I'm just like, oh, it feels good to do something I'm actually good at again. But yeah. then there's a part of me that would like, I don't really want to do this anymore, you know? It's- I don't mean,
1: know exactly. I mean, that, that's interestingly enough. I've been trying to, uh, I was trying to for a couple of years, set up basically an agency or consultancy in the U.S., based on Scandinavian values, So what I mean by that is, you know, equal pay and those kinds of things, obviously, paid maternity leave, fully paid maternity leave, six weeks of vacation, all those kinds of things. And I sort of pitched this to a bunch of consultancy heads and agency heads. And they all said, yes, that sounds like a great idea, but we can't do it. And it was either because they didn't want to do it or because they tried things like, I know that that advertising agencies, for example, uh, some of them will offer, whenever you do a promotion or pay raise, they go, okay, so you can get your increase in, in wage, either just all money or some of it in money and some of it in extra vacation every time. And people always take all the money in the US, but in the UK and Europe, they just basically take the split. And I think, again, because in the US, class and, and self-worth is so tied to working hard and making money, it's kind of, you're almost sort of fooling yourself. I think as well, that's the other thing, you know, not to go into David Graeber and bullshit jobs and so on. But if you go back through history, if you go to the 30s, for, for example, to look at what Hayek was, was uh, talking about. A lot of the things that then people, economists thought, would become automated, so we can all go down to three-hour, three-three-hour weeks, the three-day weeks, right? A lot of those things have happened, but we're still working more than ever, and we're getting AIs and all, the, all these things that can be automated, and yet we're working more than ever. So why is that? And, and Graeber's hypothesis is that we're basically fooling ourselves, because if you're working, doing something, whatever it is, and all of a sudden you can do the same thing in, in a third of the time. What it means is one of two things. Either you need to get a third of your salary or the company can, can fire two thirds of their employees, or at least do the employees to do that thing. And so you basically have to fool yourself into thinking you're busy and being productive and you're working hard all the time. You know, otherwise, you know, you stand the risk of, of losing your employment. And so it's not just that, you know, our self-worth and the money and the work, it's just like we keep fooling ourselves that that's what we have to do. And, and, you know, getting out of that is difficult to say to put it mildly.
0: And employers don't want to pay you full time salary to do one third of a as they would see it, one third no, of the job. Exactly. I had a position once where I was able to cut back to an eighty percent work week when my yeah. children were all very little for a short period of time and I covered for this guy. So I was supposed to be covering for a guy for a month who went off. He was the hardware communications person and I did the software support. And I said to my boss at the time, do you want me to book extra time off for these extra days I'm working? Or do you just want to pay me? And he said, well, you're not getting paid for the number of hours you work. You're getting paid to do a job. We're not going to pay you extra for that. And I went, wait, 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 wait. When I cut back to 80%, you cut my pay. It doesn't work yeah. one way and not the other. But he actually said that to me at the time. It's, it's I, I worked for a company with a head office in the U.S. It was in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And whenever people were at the head office, it was interesting because as long as the bosses were at work, people would wander around, even though they were finished their work, with nothing to do, just so yeah. that they could be seen.
1: Exactly. That's the thing. Um, the key to... The, the, when it comes down to it right and it's again you know we're talking about cliches but the question is so how long do you have to work in a day and the answer is five seconds longer than the guy working next to you <laughs> as soon as he leaves then you can or you know longer than your boss and and it's very much the, the case and again you know these people could have done other things but there's a you know not going to go into management too much but there are things that for example if you work, any kind of service professional service then what you tend to do is you tend to try to maximize your hours in other words you, the hours that you can charge a client right but actually if you look at it you should probably have a utility rate of somewhere around 70 percent and then you should spend the less 30 percent of your time essentially improving your skills and rating and stuff and coming up with new ideas because that's how you get better as a professional but again people don't necessarily see it that way there's a There's a huge difference between efficiency and effectiveness. And unfortunately, a lot of companies are going all in on efficiency and and, uh, misunderstanding the importance of effectiveness. And it's an old Peter Drucker quote, but there's nothing nothing so useless as doing with great efficiency that which should not be done at all. Um, Yeah. Um, And so that's, but I mean, this is never getting getting into my daily work and this is what I work with companies on and and those kinds of matters. But there's also an interesting point there about, about pay, by the way sometimes people complain about management consultants and strategy consultants on charging a lot of money. And one is if you can, then why shouldn't you? Right. Mm -hmm. But also too, like, if I take one of my um, clients that I've worked with recently, obviously you're just a small part and there's a whole lot more happening and blah, 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 blah. But basically my work led to them earning around $5 billion. Right. I don't get, A percentage of that, obviously, right? That would have been nice if I did, but don't. But if I cost X and I produce X times, you know, 50,000 or whatever it might be. I haven't done the math. Maybe I should. Um, Yeah. But, you know.
0: (laughs) Negotiate a percentage of of the...
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is that nothing is expensive if it's worth its money.
0: Exactly. And you could spend money on someone else who isn't effective... And yeah. probably spend just as much. I mean, this is true in the IT world as well. You know, oh, yeah. in IT consulting. I mean, some people just aren't necessarily creative thinkers and solution-oriented. Yeah. They they will execute a task that you give them. Whereas some of us will think, mm. wait, wait, here's a better way to do this. What are you trying to accomplish? And figure yeah. out a better way to do it.
1: <clears throat> there is uh, There is, in that though, there's an interesting... Point to be made around different perspectives, which is this. If you're working on a project, you're not the product lead, you're just working on a project. And we've all had this experience. You know, I'm sure I have, I'm sure you have. Um, I would guarantee all of your listeners have. We have this experience in which we come up with an idea that could improve whatever we're doing. And so we tell whoever's in, in charge of this project, we go, okay, so actually if you do it like this, or if you do it like that, we we'll have an idea them And then we're met by. No, but that wouldn't work. Or mm-hmm. no, let's just stick to the plan. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is. Basically, idea gets shot down, right? And over time, we learned that actually, it's it's no real point in coming up with own ideas. It's much better to just go, yes, Frank, that sounds brilliant and do whatever it is that Frank wants us to do, even though it'll sort of make us throw up in our mouths a bit. But if you instead take the perspective and, and the viewpoint of whoever's in charge of this project, what are the things you're looking for as a product manager? You're looking to come in on time ideally under budget, and a project that is as smooth as possible. That's what you're looking for. That's good management. Any new idea will disrupt that. And so on one end, you have the the sort of the stick to the plan. Let's keep things smooth. It comes out of strategic planning and by extension, you know, Fayol and, and Taylor. And then you have the people actually have new ideas and want to improve the status quo. And this is a huge problem for companies. Uh, in fact, there's a, a piece of research that came out a couple of weeks ago in the us where they noticed that companies that hire inventors com- people are specifically great at creative ideas and company ideas uh whenever they hire these people they become less inventive and less creative because again you're m- met with this kind of just that stop mm. and then the trad- sort of strategic plan and that kind of thing so uh yeah it's just you know it is an interesting thing anyway but this clash between the sort of the more agile-minded IT people with the strategic planning-minded corporate people. It's always an interesting thing. I've seen that in practice a lot.
0: Well, yes, so have I, needless to say.
1: Mm, I can imagine. I can imagine. Are you an agile proponent, or what's your view? Um,
0: You know, I have yet to be on a project that was managed on time and under budget, ever. And I have you
1: tried sorry to interrupt. Have you tried pull scheduling instead of push scheduling? No. Right. So the the difference between the two is push scheduling is when can we have this done? Pull scheduling is within the next quarter, what can we get done? And the difference between the two is that the former is basically plan-based, traditionally plan-based, the latter is more sort of agile and you can do things. And and interestingly enough, this is actually how you did things. In the early 1900s, uh, if you look at some of the, the biggest skyscrapers in the U- in New York, you'll be amazed at how quickly they were built under budget without a plan. Because if you do pull scheduling, you tend to come in under budget and before time. If you do traditional push scheduling, which is what most companies do, which that's why 70% of all projects fail, mm-hmm. then you won't ever come in under budget or on time, basically.
0: Hmm. Well, that's the only thing I've experienced. Or no plan at all. I've I've worked in situations with no plan at all. What I'm working on now is basically, I'm very lucky because I'm not marching to someone else's plan. They Mm -hmm. knew they needed to meet certain regulatory requirements, so they brought me in, in a very specific area, in the application layer provisioning. That's something I kind of know, like the back of my hand, for this particular software. So I came in and I just said... Here's what I think you need. And they said, yes, yes, yes. And I'm actively working with the business on making it happen. Now, of course, it is challenging for me because this isn't their core business. They're in business to make a product, ship the product, sell the product, make money. So now I'm trying to get bits of their time to test all these changes. So that's very challenging (laughs) because it isn't their core business. But they need it in order to meet regulatory requirements or they'll have a yeah. problem down the road. So that's the thing that I'm grappling with. The good thing is I don't have a project manager saying, here are the tasks, here's when you have to do it. So mm. that's good. So I can do things well and they're giving me that's that flexibility. Good. I
1: also th- I also think if, if that's a smart company, then they will learn a lot from what you're doing because... And I won't go into complexity because it's a whole <laughs> field and, and, and quite difficult for most. Yeah. But when you're working with complexity in the sense of complex adaptive system, technical complexity, not a higher state of complicatedness, but a completely mm-hmm. different thing entirely, what you want to do is you want to run parallel, safe to fail experiments. In other words, really cheap experiments and trying stuff out. And then if something works, you give it more research. If it doesn't work, you take away your research. And from what you're describing, being able to try stuff out, if the company's smart, they will see that actually that approach is quite clever, uh, especially when you're working in stuff that isn't part of your core. Yeah. Because if you're part of the, your core, what you t- do anyway, you tend to know that quite well, mm-hmm. right? So you don't need to run a whole lot of experiments there. Where you need to run experiments is sort of at the edges because yeah. that stuff, well, is actually what creates surv- survivability over time. But that's a whole different now we're getting into strategy and, and project management <laughs> and strategic management, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure your listeners have, you know, fallen asleep already. So We're
0: fluffy. We're fluffy over it, Jules okay. Says. <laughs> Anything else well, I mean, you'd like can, we, to share?
1: No, I was going to no, say, we can go back to the whole male versus female. So I think that's more interesting.
0: Well, not necessarily. I mean, you have a daughter. You have a wife. Yes. Um, You obviously yeah. had a very strong mom. That probably influenced...
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, but same time, you know, I think, I, I said this at, at my wedding, I think that if I ever grow to be half the man that my dad is, it's twice more than I could ever hope for.
0: So you had two so, great you know, parents?
1: I, yeah, I've been wow. blessed with two great parents. I mean, my, my dad is just like my hero. He, he's always supportive. He's always helping out. And, you know, he's very much taught me how to be a, a man. And within that, I think as well, is sort of, you know, that ties into how you treat women as well. A lot of men, I think, are far too preoccupied with how they're perceived um, and they want to sort of be macho and you know that kind of thing. And um, oftentimes it's sort of it's almost like they love the idea of being that macho male more so than they love their wife and whatever else. And at which point I just think you need to get your priorities in order, really. But um, things like, for example, I took my wife's last name when we got married because it made her happy. And so why wouldn't I do it? Right. But at the same time, when I'm out, especially when I'm out in certain parts of the world, like I I was doing a couple of talks to Ireland, for example. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I took my wife's last name was just people were shocked by it.
0: The first thing, and I don't want to know why, because I'm like, why? I'm asking why, because it is unusual in our culture, in Western culture.
1: Yeah, I mean the answer is very, very simple. the 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 reason is the same reason why I make a breakfast every morning and I make a dinner every night. It makes her happy. That's it. You, my job as her husband is to make her happy. That's it. End of. Being a man is making her happy, and she, you know, she was happy that I took her last name, so so I did it. It's not a big thing for me, and mm-hmm. it made her happy. I mean, again, that's what it all comes down to. Same thing with my daughter. There's a famous meme almost there's an image of a, this sort of really uh, quote-unquote traditionally macho man you know buff tattoos the works walking down the street in a tutu because his his daughter's got a tutu yeah. uh dressed as a fairy basically and i've never worn women's clothing in my life or dress or anything like that and i don't have any intentions to but if my daughter if it makes my daughter happy and my daughter yeah, i'll do it for her i don't care yeah. And and again it ties back into that whole how people perceive you. I don't care how many, the only people I care how they perceive me are the people that I love. That's it. And and the, the sort of the perception of strangers I couldn't get less of a shit about. And I think so that's inner confidence.
0: That. So many of us just don't have the inner confidence to not give a shit.
1: Yeah, I mean maybe it, it, you know again that that the last was episode towards the end um there's a, a letter and and the, the guy goes um People like you, and and you and I, referring to the protagonist in this case, he says, people like, or men like you and I, we have a job to do. And and what's the the line? It is um, something along the lines of, and God help whatever motherfucker comes in our way, right? (laughs) And that's the same thing here. Your job, if you want to talk about your job as a sort of a husband or father or whatever else, yes, you have to help provide. Help provide, not just provide full stop. You know, my wife earns more than I do at the moment. But uh, your job is to support for your family, not just financially, but emotionally and making them happy. And God help any motherfucker that gets in your way. Touche. Touche.
0: I'm interested in the reaction in Ireland.
1: Well, I mean, well, people, they were kind of taken aback because uh, no one does that. I mean, Ireland, obviously, quite a traditional Catholic country. Yeah. Um, and so you don't do that. And and my explanation was just like, well, it made her happy, so I wouldn't die. And, you know, I'm not religious, so I don't care about what the Bible might say about it. But then again, I, I don't care about what, it, what anyone else would say about it either. I just care about what my wife would say about it. And so, you know, that's it.
0: I have no idea if the Bible even says anything about it. I'm also not religious.
1: No. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> they, 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 I, I suppose you can interpret all kinds of stuff stuff in the Bible that you should, that's usually the case. But, but um, you know, the Catholic faith is very much comes out of, I suppose, it's tied to the Roman church and, and sort of the yeah. familias and, and so on. And then you have the strong father and, and then you take his name. right? Yeah,
0: the patriarchy. But,
1: yeah, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and again, you know, I don't, That that's the thing as well. It's just, you know, if, if it makes people happy, then do it. If it doesn't, then don't. You know.
0: Well, that's a lovely yeah. thing to end on, unless you have something else you'd like to share.
1: <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it's been my pleasure. I've been ranting around all about all kinds of things, but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Well, thank you so much. I hope you come on again. And I especially appreciate that you're willing to do this for free and that I did not tell you to fuck off, because
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know well, a lot want, of people do that if, anyway. So.
0: If an ethnic minority would like to come on the podcast, you coming on is not going to affect that. There's room for all of us.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. No, I'm happily happy to come back whenever you you want to have it.
0: I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I had to look up that Shakespearean reference to lawyers, and here it is. The First Thing We Do, Let's Kill All the Lawyers, which at face value may lead you to believe that whoever said this was intended to show that he hated the lawyers. However, this was said by a villainous character named Dick the Butcher. He's a large, threatening murderer, and he's also the right-hand man of a guy who was leading a rebellion against King Henry named Jack. So Dick and Jack are aggressively anti-intellectual in the play— They kill anyone who can read and burn all the books and documents they encounter. Sound familiar? They know that they'll be able to take over an ignorant population with greater ease than one where everyone understands their rights. Apparently, human nature hasn't changed that much since Shakespeare. If you're interested, it is in Henry VI, Part 2, Act 4, Scene 2. Thank you so much for listening. If you have anything you'd like to share, please email me at julesays at gmail.com. I'll be back next week.